discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make your second half of life even better than the first. For 40 years, Jay Newman was a legendary hedge fund portfolio manager, traveling across the globe to recover billions of dollars in debt defaults by countries like the Congo, Panama, and Argentina. When he retired in 2016, he considered writing a biographical nonfiction account of his storied career. Instead, he decided that fiction might be a better vehicle to capture the essence of the people and events he encountered over the years. In today's episode, Jay talks about his new novel, Under Money, a blockbuster financial thriller about a group of Americans who secretly take over the world's largest dark money fund. He'll talk about what he learned about the unseen confluence of money, power, and corruption that has shaped the destiny of nations. Under money, in fact, is a term invented by Jay. Jay will also describe how he made the transition to a first-time novelist in retirement, learning how to use research along with his experiences to create a richly fictional world that eerily appears to foreshadow today's evolving geopolitical landscape. And he'll offer some insights and observations about what we can learn from the world's mega crooks and how we might limit the corruption that inevitably pervades each generation. So now let's meet our guest, Jay Newman. Jay, welcome to the show. Well, Ron, it is, um, it is so excellent to, um, to see you. And, and, and me as well, Jay. And for our listeners, let me just tell, tell you two things. One is that I have the honor of having Jay on my 100th show on 45 Forward. So it's Congratulations. A, That's, that is awesome. It, I'm, I'm really thrilled. And uh, I, I only regret I don't have a door prize for you because this is Zoom. <laughs> but um, anyway, so um, the second thing is that, that Jay and I go back many years uh, this is actually coming up our fifth fiftieth reunion at, at Yale, and we were classmates and roommates for a year together. So it's a wonderful um, privilege to have you back, and, and with a you know something that I did not expect when we were graduating. But it's it's a wonderful um, surprise for me learning over the last year about your new book. So um, uh, let's let's dive into it. And but before we actually talk about the book. I always like to start a little bit about, you know, the topic is mainly about the book today, but with each show, I like to just, you know, begin with a little background about the guests and about rather than, you know, people can go to um, my website, rowellresources.com and click on the 45 forward tab and they can read a bit more about your background. But rather than just, you know, read your resume, um, I want to you know, talk about your journey a bit about how you, um, because everyone's. My show does focus on, you know, the second half of life, but life is a journey that starts and continues in, in different chapters. So I'd like to give our, my guests an opportunity just to sit, tell about how you got to where you are today. Well, it's, um, uh, it's interesting you frame it as a journey because for me, uh, the most important parts of my life and my career have centered around travel. And the, the, my mother was an, an inveterate uh, traveler. Uh, and uh, my brother and I never went to uh, uh, camp. Uh, that's not exactly true. Went to Boy Scout camp. Uh, right. there. Um, but she believed that uh, the best thing she could do for us was to show us the world. Mm. And one year, 
she read about something called the Pan-American Highway, mm. which uh, this was, of course, we grew up in the in the 50s and in the 60s. So this this would have been in um, in the mid 60s when I think I was uh, 11 years old. My brother was nine. And she read about uh, this highway that had just been completed. So you could drive from, in our case, New Jersey, because that's where we were living, uh, all the way to Panama City, Panama. Wow. Um, well, uh, I, I don't know where she got this idea, but she decided that's what we we're going to do for the summer. <laughs> wow. And so she uh, she put us, uh, my brother Ali, uh, uh, and me in, a, in the back seat. My father drove uh, with us as far as Mexico City. Hmm. I just want to say one thing about that, even that leg of the journey. Uh, because today, you it will be impossible to survive. Not impossible. Let's say the odds of surviving a, uh, uh, a, a woman, uh, a couple from New Jersey with a couple of kids in the backseat driving through Mexico, <laughs> uh, getting to, through Mexico alive, because we drove not just to Mexico City, but all the way south through some of the, you know, the, today the most dangerous parts of the world. Wow. Uh, the odds of surviving would be slim. Hmm. Uh, and my mom, uh, my dad flew back. He drove with us as far as Mexico City, and then he flew back to New Jersey to go back to work. And my mother, on her own, drove us the rest of the way. We didn't get to Panama because, in fact, the road really wasn't done. And there wasn't hmm. many places. It wasn't much of a road. It was gravel. It was uh, fording streams. Uh, and but she she drove us through Guatemala, uh, El Salvador, Honduras, Costa Rica, Nicaragua. Uh, and along the way, we were stopped variously by armed armed militias, uh, insurgents, kids with machine guns. It was, of course, wow. the streets were it was, you know, looking back, it was kind of mind boggling and a bit crazy, you know, and I've only, I've really only started thinking and, and this is not exactly a recovered memory, but I only started thinking and talking about this in the context of explaining the genesis of under money and right. my, my love of, of travel and, and novelty and meeting, uh, meeting different people in different environments. Um, so um, that, uh, that was my first, um, my first big adventure. Uh, and it was a huge adventure. Although being a kid at the time, you think, well, you're with your mom. What bad could happen? <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's quite an adventure. That's so you were this was during high school, Jane? You... Uh no, it was it was the uh it was the the summer before fifth grade. Wow. Wow. Uh, it was it was um and along the way, we we met lots of lots of characters. A guy who wanted to sell us a gold mine, uh, a uh, you know a finance minister who wanted us to uh, who knows do what. But it was it, because it was also a time when there was great optimism, uh, and uh, JFK was a uh, a widely admired figure in Latin America. Uh, and uh, we we carried as uh, as souvenirs as gifts. We carried a um, a couple of rolls of JFK uh, silver dollars. Wow! 
and uh, and the and people. And so any anytime anybody uh, helped us at all, and and people were extremely helpful and hospitable, uh, we would give them uh, one of these coins, which um, which they cherished. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, that, that's, that's a great story. And I'm, I'm sure as you know, it is a good, um, um, inspirational, uh, memory that, 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 that does sort of explain a lot about, you know, in, in the recesses of your, your writing muse, you know, generated a lot, you know, a lot of your enthusiasm for this novel and, and for your career, but, uh, wow. So, so thanks for that story. I mean, people, um, We'll probably, you know, touch upon your your other your career, uh, you know, as a hedge fund uh, portfolio manager and how that your experiences, you know, uh, related to the book. But but I wanted to talk first about just, you know, the the, you know, the title, you know, the thing, the obvious, the, the title that which is uh, provocative and uh, um, so explain a little bit about under money. Yes, it's a term you coined and and how did you come up with that and what do you mean by that? Well, it's. So under money, Ron, I should say that one of my goals for today mm-hmm. is that everybody who is listening to your show will uh, read my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, obvious, but more importantly, I'm hoping that everybody who's listening will think the term and the word under money every day. How's that? How's that possible? So, under money, I define under money as uh, f- the flow of funds that isn't visible to the public, but that influences people and events. Mm-hmm. And under money is everywhere. In fact, if you're if you're reading the paper and you see something that doesn't make sense, the answer is usually under money. But let me let me give you an idea of how. I mean, the, the sure. genesis of the idea. My son, David, uh, studied, uh, also went to Yale, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, much later than we did, mm-hmm. uh, and was studying Japanese uh, and befriended a restaurateur in Tokyo. And this friend of his came to New York. He was going to open a restaurant in New York. And we went out to dinner with him uh, in the East Village on 9th Street. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, uh, is there a difference between opening a restaurant in New York versus um, Tokyo. And he shook his head no, rubbed his fingers together in the universal sign of money, shoved them under the table and said, under money. Exactly. Meaning that New York, just like Tokyo, uh, is, you know, is a, a place where a little bit of uh, vigorish, a little bit of money under the table uh, keeps things moving and makes things happen. And that's really what under money is all about. It's uh, it's corruption at um, at any level, at a low level, at a high level, at a social, political, business level. Uh, but it's fundamentally about invisible movements of money that make things happen. And when I was when I was thinking about writing, uh, I started writing the story with, you know, that with two two kind of big ideas in mind. And one was this notion of under money. And the other was the experience of a couple of friends of mine who had been uh, former military officers. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, it's easy to say, to use that phrase, you know, well, you know, you want to know what's going on, follow the money. But what you're saying is, yeah, but sometimes you just can't see it. <laughs> it's hard to follow unless you, because it's under the table. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not as easy as one might think. Um, uh, so just, uh, I, I agree. My part of my uh, goal today is to get people to read your book. I've started it. It's a great book. Um, so just give us a little bit of a quick um, synopsis to set up the plot so people know what it's about a little bit, just to, you know, from a plot perspective. So uh, Under Money Begin, and this is not much of a, spoil, a spoiler <clears throat> because it happens in the first couple of pages of the book. So mm -hmm. uh, it's Under Money Begins with a group of American patriots mm -hmm. who decide they just don't like the way the world is going and they want to change it. And in order to change it, they need to get one of their group elected to higher office, ideally to the presidency. Mm -hmm. But they also realize that in order to achieve that, they need a lot of money. So they intercept a shipment. And th this is the, the, the good news, bad news about under money is that pretty much everything that happens in the book is true. Uh, and, uh, and some of the events are quite horrendous, but nonetheless, many of them are true. Most of them are true. And what this group does is they intercept a shipment of $2.4 billion that is airdropped from an American cargo plane into Syria. And instead of taking that $2.4 billion and bringing it to the desk of uh, the local distributor, whether it's uh, an American military officer or uh, Middle Eastern uh, potentate, they steal it and they spirit it away and uh, they hide it. But then they realize that in order to use it, they really have to get it in motion. And to get it, and this is where the, the plot really thickens because they put it in motion by uh, uh, falling into league with a guy named, in, in my telling, Fyodor Volk, who's actually modeled on the, the foremost uh, operator of, of uh, Russian private military companies, uh, a guy named Dmitry Ukin, who runs the, the Wagner Group. Um, in Undermoney, it's not Wagner, it's Parsifal. Uh, that's the, the, the group that he runs. And mm -hmm. they uh, form a partnership with Volk to take care of the money for them and feed it back into the political system as and when they need it. Hmm. Uh, and it's downhill from there. <laughs> okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, but that's, uh, so we'll, we'll get back to something talking about a little bit about the book itself, but um, um, uh, even before that, I, I wanted to, um, uh, since we're, we're talking about uh, you and, and, and people like you who make transitions in life. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that. You know, our 45 no four notion of, you know, how you change, how you make transitions. And so in our previous conversation, you, you, we, we, you and I were talking about, um, so when you, you retired um, uh, in 2016, I believe it was, you had started thinking about, well, geez, you know, maybe I'll write an account of this career, this uh, traveling and experiencing um, all of these uh, 
interesting people across the globe. But but you decided to to do it as a fiction um, approach. So tell tell us about that. Why did you feel this was a better way to go? Well, um, uh, let, let me step back for a, just sure. a second because because when you use the word transition, it made me think how how I got to the point of writing and. I made a couple of big transitions uh, in my in my life in my career, and the first was I not knowing what to do with myself after college. I went to law school, mm-hmm. and law really wasn't for me. I uh, I practiced law for about five years, but um, it, it didn't really didn't really enjoy it. And I had the opportunity to I was recruited to do new product development at a, a, a legendary firm called Lehman Brothers. Mm-hmm. And at Lehman Brothers, uh, one, of my, one of my first tasks was to analyze whether uh, a market could be developed in the defaulted debt of developing countries. Mm-hmm. So this is where the, the travelogue really took hold because I was able to travel uh, to 20 countries, uh, all of which were in default. Uh, I was able to travel across this country and, and across Europe, meeting with uh, dozens of banks. And everyone decided that, uh, every, everyone that I met with said that they would, thought it would be great if, if Lehman could develop a, a secondary market in defaulted bank loans. And this was before the whole junk bond, uh, junk bonds were just emerging. Uh, Mike Milken was just becoming a formidable force in mm-hmm. finance. Uh, but at that time, there was really very little trading of distressed assets. But I, I wrote my business plan, and I went in to see the new product development committee at Lehman and uh, said, no, no one that we've spoken to thinks it's a bad idea. Huh. So uh, it's something that the firm could really think about doing. And if you can imagine those days, Lehman was a, a, a very feisty, energetic institution uh, as it was until its demise, I think, right. uh, and maybe that uh, uh, presage its demise. Uh, but this committee was the guys that ran the firm, and it was at breakfast, and it was on a, a, a the forty eighth floor at, at um, fifty five Water Street. And I walked into the room, and I had to cut through the cigar smoke hmm. because everybody was smoking cigars at breakfast indoors. <laughs> and and finally, after a bit of discussion, when the the uh, head of the committee, a guy named Francis de Saint Fal, said, "Okay, we're going to do this," um, and he looked around and uh, said, "Who wants to run this business?" And everybody looked down at their eggs, put their cigars back in their mouths, and pretended that they, they didn't hear the question because they all had businesses; they had no interest in starting this new, unproven. And therefore, uninteresting business. So I raised my hand and said, "Well, I'd like to do it." And uh, France said, "You were—you just got here six months ago, and you were a lawyer. And what do you know about starting a business?" And I said, "Nothing, <laughs> nothing at all. But nobody here wants to do it, and I do. And that's how I got started in the the whole idea of investing in and trading." defaulted sovereign debt, which I, I did in one form or another for uh, uh, 30 years. Wow. Another great story. <laughs> well, it's, it's a, a transition. And then um, 
But to go back to your your question about transition from hedge fund work, and happy to talk about what I did it um, as a hedge fund investor. But the uh, I had the chance as an investor to travel, uh, really, to fifty countries, wow. meeting meeting people, doing research, thinking about how the world worked, and mostly trying to figure out how not to get screwed making investments. Right. Well, on that on that on that uh, note, we're gonna hold that thought. We're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back, uh, folks, don't go away. We have much more. Uh, to talk about with Jay Newman uh, about his uh, new novel uh, Under Money, uh, so it's gonna it's gonna be an exciting segment. So don't go away, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance of success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Jay Newman, a legendary hedge fund investor and the author of a new financial thriller, Under Money. Uh, Now, before we continue, I wanted to mention that you can find out more about Jay at his website, uh, jaynewman.com, and you can find out a lot more about his book, uh, which is is a terrific, uh, uh, not only just, it's a terrific first book, but a terrific book, period. Uh, So before the break, we were talking to Jay about uh, um, some of his life's transitions, and he was, we ended on an interesting note where he was saying one of the uh, foremost things we have to learn as an investor and probably in life in general is how not to get screwed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let, let's pick up. Uh, uh, um, so as we were talking about, you know, n- also transitioning um, uh, into your, uh, you know, post um, hedge fund career. Well, the, um, I think the point about not getting screwed, you're right, Ron, it's a, it's a, maybe it's a general principle for a living, Right. <laughs> but particularly as an investor, and I was investing in and trying to figure out a very complicated uh, part of the financial markets. It was investing in the defaulted debt of developing countries. And just to put that in into context, 
in the uh, in the early 1980s, uh, the, the 1980s were referred to as the lost decade in emerging markets because dozens of countries defaulted and found themselves absolutely closed out of, of getting capital. For the most part, those countries deserved to be closed out of capital markets because they behaved uh, extremely irresponsibly regarding the money they borrowed. There's a debate about this. The other side is that lenders behaved equally irresponsibly and shouldn't have given them the money in the first place. But uh, putting that aside, let's say there was fault on both sides of, of the issue. Mm -hmm. But my my task was to, to try to figure out which countries were investable uh, and in particular, uh, which countries, you know, would or could pay what they owed. Uh, and you can imagine that uh, when the stakes are high, a, a sovereign deciding how much it's going to pay, who it's going to pay, uh, how much it's going to pay, when it's going to pay. These are these are life and death decisions for local politicians. And it took a lot of figuring out to determine whether a particular country uh, represented a good investment or a bad one. And what I what I saw was really the dark underbelly of international finance. Uh, and this really informed my my kind of professional experience, because every every time you turned around uh, somebody in uh, in country X or country Y or country Z was trying to bamboozle investors and most likely trying to steal money or scam them out of money. Mm -hmm. So that that experience is what informed my thinking about under money uh, so that when I retired, uh, that was the the way I thought about how the world fits together. And as you mentioned at the beginning, that intersection of money, power, politics and corruption. Yeah, but it and it, it took um, so you had a lot of experience in it, but uh, one of the things uh, that I mean, it, it, as people read the book, they'll they'll know it's, it's extraordinarily richly detailed. And so, um, in order to make this uh, move, I'm, I'm, I'm again, I, I from what I understand too, you know, that this is and talking about your transitions, you know, writing is something you always were interested in. So it's not like all of us are like, oh, I had this career. Oh, maybe I'll just write about it. You've always been interested in writing. Um, and I think I recall in, in a, one of your interviews where, where actually when when you were at Yale and you studied economics but also art and you thought about writing, but you said your 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 parents would go would flip out if you said you were going to be a writer. <laughs> but as as many of our parents did, like no, no, <laughs> anything but that, <laughs> right? Um, uh, but at any rate. Um, uh, you know, it does. It you know, it, it does take a lot of the same disciplines uh, as your as your previous career. Um, but talk a little bit just about. We'll talk a little about process, and then get back to some of what what you know we, we you've uncovered in doing the book and and what you wanted and what your message is in the book. But um, uh, so talk about how you wrote the book a little bit. I think it, it took you a couple of years to write the draft, and um, uh, as as you mentioned, a lot of what's in there, you didn't, it's not you know autobiographical. It took a lot of work, and I think that so talk about how you did it, how you researched it, um, and and basically developed a, you know a basis of knowledge to write about this. 
Yeah, it's it's really started. So the two the two kind of seminal ideas I had were this notion of invisible flows of money, of under money, mm-hmm. and the experiences of two guys that I had met when I was working on Wall Street, uh, and in, in, both of whom became characters in the book. Uh, and these guys were military. Uh, they were, in fact, they they still won't tell me which units they were in, but they they would appear and disappear from uh, the firm on a regular basis. And they were they were essentially off on special missions, special mm-hmm. forces missions. Wow. And so they would uh, they would go off and and then they would come back. Uh, they would go off on a mission to Afghanistan, Iraq. Syria, wherever, you know, the hotspot of the moment. Uh, and then they would come back and they'd make some money. And six months later, they'd be off again on some other uh, adventure, hmm. uh, working for the U.S. government or the CIA or whoever they won't tell me they work for. But but I remember over many years talking to both of those guys, um, uh, Don Carmel, who became Don Carter in the book, uh, and Ed Luzine, who became Ed Newsine in the book, mm-hmm. about how we were unhappy with the way the world was going and what we would do uh, if we had the opportunity to change things and how we might get there to change things. Uh, so I, I really started with a couple of, not just the idea of illicit mon- money and funds, but with a couple of American patriots and then I built out a team around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't, I can't actually remember, uh, I, I, I do vaguely remember the day I started writing and I had been outlining a nonfiction uh, version of my career, uh, which friends had encouraged me to write uh, because I had a lot of uh, adventures trying to collect debt from uh, deadbeat countries like, uh, as you mentioned, Panama, the Congo, Argentina, Argentina, most notably, uh, you know, my, my swan song. Right. Uh, and so I, I was, but as I was telling this, the, the nonfiction version of the story, I realized that it was really going to be a bore. It would just would never, it would attract the interest of, you know, friends and family, maybe family. Uh, I'm not even sure my kids would have read a book like that. <laughs> but um, but so I began thinking about how to fictionalize my hedge fund experience and my life experience. Uh, and so I built kind of the travel log and the idea of the list flows of funds and my two friends who had been in the military into a, a story uh, about how they might go about acquiring power. And that's, and that's, and I just started writing. I, I sat down one day and I just started a little bit, I mean, not to be grandiose or silly, but um, remember the, the Forrest Gump mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, he's got the big beard and he's just running, 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 <laughs> he doesn't right. quiet running, but he's just running. Uh, and I just started running hmm. you know, in the form of writing. And I would, you know, sit at um, the kitchen table or, you know, my desk or wherever, uh, and just write things down. Yeah. And eventually I had, uh, a couple hundred pages of story. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to be introduced to a, uh, 
a, a fabulous uh, guy, uh, Sloan Harris, who uh, is uh, is my agent, who read, and when I look at back, I kind of shudder to think how unformed and in a way even silly these, you know, these pages were because the, the final result was so different from uh, the first draft of those couple of hundred pages. But Sloan uh, liked it. He saw something in it. He he thought it was uh, uh, unusual in, in terms of my background and what informed the writing. And he took me on as a, uh, and, and then really put me through my paces to help develop the story. Uh, and Sloan is just, shout out to Sloan. Thank you. Right. Well, just in the last few minutes, there there are three lessons that strike me, you know, in, in listening to you about writing. Uh, and one is that, yeah, we kind of mentioned <laughs> just run, you know, Forrest Gump. But but that's important, you know, for people who, who do want to write. It's just, is write. Just do it. Keep going. Keep going. Um, and uh, you mentioned one of our previous conversations, it was like, well, you were kind of undisciplined as a writer. You just wrote here or there. But But that's, in fact how you often have to do it. You just have to keep going. You don't know where this is going to end up. Um, uh, and this, this one of the second things is um, that I think people who want to write have this um, badly uh, misshapen notion that you just write and uh, there it is. <laughs> you know, the, the secret to writing is, uh, is, is rewriting and good writing and working with editors and working and having some humility to realize that people can make things better. And you have to, um, you know, part with your precious words sometimes because uh, that's not what people are seeing. That's in your head, but they're seeing something different. Um, and um, uh, I think, you know, that those are important lessons to, to take away from, uh, from this sort of experience. Um, and, um, you know, I think that they're, uh, the, the last thing is that, um, uh, you know, I'm sure people say, well, geez, Jay, how did you, you know, people say, well, we'll write what you know. Well, you write, a lot of that was what you know, but, but uh, in today's age, you can write what you know, but from what you learn from doing good research. And um, in some of the, the pieces that I've done in the past, people have said, well, that's, wow, that's really good writing. And I said, well, that's because there's good research behind it. And I think that, that your research, I think, really brings out the, the details, you know, bring out the authenticity of it. And you didn't have to literally experience it yourself, but you did do the research to, to bring out the authenticity. Uh, the, the research was really uh, absolutely essential uh, because I, I had a lot of I had a lot of thoughts and I had a lot of experiences. But and I had been to most of the places that uh, I, I uh, describe in the book. But still, there were a lot that I hadn't been to. I'm going to just hang on a second. I have to close the door. I apologize to your engineer. Sure. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. This companion piece to her successful guidebook series, The Space of the Waste, focuses on body types and how to make your waist length flattering, no matter what your body type is. Guests include designers, merchandise managers, factory owners, and more. 
You'll also find out what accessories will complement your body shape and waist length. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, Please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. Once again, I'm talking with Jay Newman, the author of Under Money, about his new financial thriller. And before the break, we were talking about uh, Jay, uh, of course, was a, um, a hedge fund manager and investor before that. And and uh, so some of what he uh, learned and experienced in his previous career, he, uh, he used for the book, but he also uh, learned a lot by doing research. Uh, so that's what we were talking about before the break and about the process of writing. So let's continue on that track, Jay, about you know research and the importance of how you learned how to write, basically. Um, Ron, I think we were, we were in the same writing class in college. Right. Uh, we, we took a class with Bill Zinzer, uh, which was nonfiction writing, and I have to I have to say that uh, I th- I think about Bill uh, almost every day when I'm writing hmm. because he really hated for the first half of that class he hated everything I did. Jeez, <laughs> and he he said you're 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 not specific, you're not organized, you you just have to. Why don't you just pick something out and tell me how it works. So I looked around the room and this was, this was discouraging because, you know, we all think, you know, our, our writing is, you know, it's, it's ours. It's great. It's, you know, what we want to say, even though it may be undisciplined uh, and discipline is very important in, in writing and editing and being edited. Uh, and I looked around the room and I saw a fire extinguisher. So I researched how fire extinguishers work. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was the most, in the way, the most mundane topic you could imagine. But I, Bill told me to explain how something works. So that's what I did. And he loved it. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was revelatory because explaining how something works means having an internal logic to a story even if it's a story as simple as 
And they're not that simple. Actually, fire extinguishers are, are not really that simple. There's a lot of engineering and science behind them. So I think about that a lot in, in writing and uh, in particular in, in kind of rewriting mm-hmm. because you, you have to build that logic. And I really learned that uh, most, uh, I really learned that from, from Sloan and from the two editors that I, I worked with. I worked with a guy named Will Dana, who was a formidable uh, editor. Uh, and then my editor at Scribner's, uh, Colin Harrison. Uh, and all three of those guys really put me through my paces in terms of making sure that even though the story is, is fiction, that it had internal consistency, that it flowed, that it made sense. Right. Uh, and for those who don't know about Bill Zinzer, um, he he was a, a legendary New Yorker writer. He worked for the old uh, New York Herald Tribune before that, and um, he wrote a, a seminal book that you know is on many uh, writers' bookshelves called "On Writing Well." And uh, I, I concurred with your experience, Jay. And and Bill was also the gentlest, calmest um, critic who used a scalpel to your work <laughs> and it was like like oh my god you know it, it was it, but it was so quiet uh that you <laughs> you didn't realize he was just uh it was, slicing. So sharp. it was so sharp it didn't hurt a bit right right and he was just uh uh his uh, his enemy was clutter and um uh, and that was uh he, he as you pointed out jay he, he worked on your consistency and cut out things that don't, you know, um, that don't fit, that don't contribute to the story. Um, and, uh, and also just, you know, working with him, you got to appreciate as you did with your other editors, um, you know, working with editors to make your writing better. And, uh, and it's not always easy, you know, um, I think in one of your other interviews in, in the New Yorker, uh, you, you talk about, you know, working with your editor and, uh, you know, and sometimes, you know, you have to work with what, people want you to do so he mentioned that uh great plot great action need more sex <laughs> right <laughs> and you're like well uh, all right <laughs> you know? um and uh so tell the end of that story <laughs> well it's uh <laughs> um <clears throat> the, the first uh there was no sex at all right uh, and so i was writing a, a political financial thriller uh, and with powerful, sophisticated, phenomenally wealthy people, uh, and there was no sex. And he said, that's not possible. <laughs> said, these people are thinking about sex all the time. So I started putting sex in. And actually, before that, I, I went home and I, I, I was talking about this at the dinner table, uh, telling my wife and, and my kids and I remember my son Dan saying, "You can't do that. Mm-hmm. I can't. I cannot have my father writing a book with sex in it." I said, "Well, that's that's the job." Uh, so I started putting sex in, and where it worked, and it 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 uh, it, I think it worked well. Uh, but then I couldn't stop because every time I got to another uh, section, another set of relationships, I realized that they were still going to have sex. So I had to write about it. And so I kept adding sex. And finally, Colin said, enough. 
<laughs> you now have enough sex, no more. Um, but fortunately, he didn't cut any of the sex scenes. Right. Um, I hope I hope they're tasteful. They're not, you know, they're not terribly graphic, but um, yeah. But it and and then you had to cut the book by what twenty five percent, right? <laughs> yeah, at the, at the very end. So the book, the the basic book, took uh, two years to write uh, from pretty much when I started to submitting it to uh, to Scribner's and. And they went through another whole year of, uh, while it was slated for production, it went through another uh, series of edits and it involved cutting it another uh, 25%, which is way too long. It's a, it's a long book as it is because there's a lot of story, but uh, it still had to be cut dramatically. And that was, that was really hard and painful uh, because as, as you know, these, you know, these paragraphs, these chapters, become your children you know you fall mm -hmm. in love with them and you don't you're going to miss them if they are you know cut yeah i remember somebody once telling me that um but but that is in, in sometimes the measure of a really tight story is that when you have to cut things that you really do love but <laughs> you need to cut it needs to it needs to be shorter for the reader um and uh, yeah, I, I had I would have have similar experiences in writing articles when I would submit it to the editor, and then he or she would say, "Okay, well, we need to add this." And uh, okay, okay, well, we need to add this. I'm like, "Okay, good, I'll do that." And then after two or three days of adding things, and say, "Okay, now, now cut it 25 percent." <laughs> Same sort of thing. I think, okay, so I can't cut those scenes, but I have to cut something else. But it's a good discipline. It really is a good discipline. And then, and then sometimes when you when you sit back and you look at the end product, you know, with some distance, you're like, this is fine. It's fine. You know, yes, these, these lovely scenes are still in my head, but the reader never knew them and it's okay. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we could talk more about the, the book itself and some things, but I, you know, I agree with you. I want people to read the book. So what I wanted to spend the last segment talking about a little bit more is just, you know, what you came, what you personally came away yourself with because you and i have talked before about you know it's about corruption and money and under money um so, so what did you come away you know yourself learning from this well not on the experience of writing the book but you know from the message of 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 under under money what does it mean in terms of what we need to you started before talking about how to change the world so what things can't what are some of the lessons about uh, you know one of the one of the things i really hoped to accomplish in the book is to show uh, how pervasive corruption is hmm. and how, how big money moves people and events and ideas. Because I don't think, I think it's a, it's, it's common wisdom that politics is a dirty business. But I don't think most of us think day to day or minute to minute about how dirty it is, how driven by money and power. And one thing I hoped to achieve in, in Undermoney is to lay bare some of those relationships and, and just describe that this is, this is what's happening every day uh, in, uh, in the world. And that I, one of my goals, when I mentioned at the beginning that I thought, I, I hope people would think the term under money every single day 
when they open the paper and they see something that doesn't make any sense, uh, or that does make sense, but that explains something in a way that is perhaps um, unattractive. I think we, we've seen a fair amount of reporting lately on insider trading mm-hmm. by uh, elected officials and their staff. And even though constraints have been put on that, it's still largely legal and it's more importantly, it's, it's tolerated. Uh, that is classic under money. There was a, an expose, uh, the Wall Street Journal of judges that were acting in cases in which they had economic interests in some of the litigants in front of them. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, as skeptical as I am of, of the world and politics, I found that really hard to stomach. Uh-huh. But the really hard thing to stomach was that the judges just made excuses for themselves. They said, oh, well, it didn't, it didn't affect the decision, notwithstanding the fact that the law requires that judges not act in cases in which they have any sort of pecuniary interest. Uh-huh. And yet they were doing this. And no charges have been brought. No judges have been removed. I'll give you another example. Uh, And this makes me really nuts. Uh, In New York, um, I I, I just follow this in New York. You've seen license plates and license plates will say uh, New York State Senate, New York State Assembly, uh, Supreme Court, State of New York. What's the message and who's the target for those license plates? I I can only think of one message. It's a message to the state trooper that pulls somebody over that they better not make any trouble mm-hmm. because it's just going to be trouble for them. So it's 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 small things like that that are emblematic of... Uh, a fundamental uh, sense of impunity that permeates the thinking of elected officials and and necessarily people who try to influence them mm-hmm. through political donations. Uh, and it's uh, so this is the, these themes are are central to undermoney, uh, and they're themes that I hope that people will accept as, not just as specific events in the book, but as generalized concepts that, uh, and if if we can all become more thoughtful about what we're seeing and 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 vote with our you know vote with our votes um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when the opportunity comes. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that you mentioned to me, which I thought was an interesting um, kind of uh, way to look at it, you, you said to me, "Well, I'm not cynical. I'm just realistic about the fact." And your perspective was that elected officials and people in power are not different from you and me. And that's what I thought was interesting, that it's not about being cynical or about, you know, people in power, but but they act uh, in their own interests the way we all act. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're all people. We, you know, we want to take care of ourselves and our families. Uh, We want to, you know, live long and prosper. Um, but the, I think there is a an attempt, certainly on the part of the uh, political class, to claim that they're engaged in some higher purpose, 
almost like they're a, a kind of clergy. And that's just not the case. Uh, and if we think about uh, the, you know, the, the people that are that we elect to run our country and to do our bidding and think of them not as people who have uh, higher motives, but people who are uh, serving their own interests. And along the way, if we hold them to task, mm -hmm. they will do a good job for us. But we have to hold them to task. We have to demand uh, that they they work hard and honestly, and not pretend that um, uh, they are uh, the priests of a um, universal religion. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, I, I'd I'd love to continue our conversation and. and we can invite you back because I know that you are working on the second, right? You have a, a sequel and perhaps even a third one, right? This is maybe a trilogy, right? A sequel for sure. Okay. Uh, a third. Well, let's see. Let's see where the second one comes out. Okay, if, great. If there's great. a world left after the second one. <laughs> okay. Well, I just want to uh, thank you so much, uh, Jay, for a terrific show. Um, and uh, folks, if, if, if you missed our conversation with Jay today, um, you can listen to it as a podcast on voiceamerica.com. Uh, just search for my show, 45 Forward, or you can listen to it on Apple, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts, um, or go to my website, roelresources.com, and click on the 45 Forward tab. Uh, and uh, you can find out more. Jay, the best way to contact you is uh, um, through your website, jaynewman.com. Yes, that'd be, that's perfect. Great. Okay. And you can buy your the book there and you can find it on Amazon and wherever you buy books. Uh, so folks, uh, be sure to join me uh, next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern time, when I'll be talking with Ty Burr, an acclaimed film critic and cultural columnist who reflects on his lifelong intoxication with cinema and his new post-newspaper venture, a newsletter devoted to reviews of theatrical and streaming, team, uh, streaming films. So until then, folks, keep moving forward. 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.